0: Look around, you can find cars like these on Autotrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Autotrader. Just you wait, Autotrader.
2: I first met Maya Angelou in Baltimore more than 25 years ago. Our bond was immediate and profound. I felt as if we'd known each other forever because I'd been reading her books forever. And I begged her for an interview and said, if you'll just give me five minutes, just five minutes. And I watched the clock, and at five minutes, I ended the interview. And she turned to me and said, who are you, girl? Well, let me tell you who she is. She is, for me, a mentor. She has become my mother-sister friend and has guided me through some of the most important years of my life. She never tells me exactly what I want to hear, but always what I need to hear. At the heart of her, she is a teacher. And of course, she's a poet. She has won three Grammys, speaks six languages, and was the second poet in history to recite a poem at a presidential inauguration. But what is most impressive to me about Maya Angelou is not what she has done or written, or spoken, it's how she has done it all. She moves through the world with unshakable, calm, confidence, and a fiery, fierce grace, and abounding love. That is why she is a master. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass.
1: After I had written the inaugural poem for President Clinton, United Nations people called me and asked if I would write a poem for the world. I said yes first. I always say yes for a good thing. And then I go to the library and then I ask rabbis and priests and preachers and, and imams, what do you think? But finally, I thought of United Nations, when it was founded in San Francisco, I was 17, and I would go down to where they would meet, and and I would watch the people go in. I read that simultaneous translators would be paid $150 a week to translate language. I knew I had a penchant for languages, and if I wasn't six foot tall, black, pregnant, unmarried, and uneducated, I could go in that building. And I cried. Can you imagine what it felt like, 50 years later, to be asked not only to write a poem, but to come back to San Francisco, to that building, and deliver the poem to the heads of state of the world. There's an African-American song, 19th century, which is so great. It says, When it looked like the sun wasn't gonna shine anymore, God put a rainbow in the clouds. Imagine. And I've had so many rainbows in my clouds. I had a lot of clouds. But I have had so many rainbows, and one of the things I do when I step up on a stage, when I stand up to translate, when I go to teach my classes, when I go to direct a movie, I bring everyone who has ever been kind to me with me. Black, white, Asian, Spanish-speaking, Native American, gay, straight, everybody. I say, come with me. I'm going on the stage. Come with me. I need you now long dead, you see, so I don't ever feel I have no help. I've had rainbows in my clouds, and the thing to do, it seems to me, is to prepare yourself so that you can be a rainbow in somebody else's cloud, somebody who may not look like you, may not call God the same name you call God, if they call God at all, (laughs) you see? I may not eat the same dishes prepared the way you do. may not dance your dances or speak your language. But be a blessing to somebody. That's what I think.
2: Every human being at some point will have clouds in their lives, some darker than others. The thing that Maya Angelou's taught me about finding the rainbow in the cloud is that you can go through the cloud, you can go around the cloud or above it, no matter how. The light is always there. The light is always there. Yours to seek and to find. I don't know anyone who understands the power of words more than Maya Angelou. I've been in her home at a party and someone telling a homophobic joke or making fun of someone in a derogatory way and watched her invite them to leave or stop them in mid-sentence and say, not in my house you won't.
1: Words are things, I'm convinced. You must be careful about the words you use or the words you allow to be used in your house. In the Old Testament, we are told in Genesis that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God and the Word was with God. That's in Genesis. Words are things. You must be careful, careful about calling people out of their names, using racial pejoratives and sexual pejoratives and all that ignorance. Don't do that. Someday we'll be able to measure the power of words. I think they are things, I think they get on the walls, they get in your wallpaper, they get in your rugs, in your upholstery, in your clothes, and finally into you. When I was three and my brother five, my mother and father separated, divorced, and neither of them wanted me and my brother. But my grandmother, my father's mother, said, send them to me. And so they sent us without adult supervision on a train with tags on our arms saying these children ought to be given to Mrs. Annie Henderson, my grandma. We actually arrived in the town. Dining car waiters and Pullman car porters, took us off trains, put us on other trains, and we really arrived in this village about the size of a studio to Stamps, Arkansas. My grandmother owned the only black-owned store in the little village in which we lived. She was an amazing woman. She lent money to, to the white businessmen in the town during the Depression. So she taught me so much. And I look like her, and I sound like her. When I was seven, we were picked up and taken from my grandmother to my mother's people in St. Louis. My mother's people were foreign to me. All of her brothers were highfalutin, you know, were so this and that. And My brother Bailey and I tried to learn and become city kids But my mother's boyfriend raped me when I was seven. I told Bailey the name of the rapist. I wouldn't tell the adults, but I told Bailey. I said, I can't tell you because he said he will kill you. He was nine years old. He said, I won't let him. So I told him, of course, I believed anything. He was my black kingdom come, Bailey. So he told the family. The man was put in jail for one day and night and released, and two huge white policemen came into my mother's mother's house. Bailey and I were on the floor playing a game in her parlor. These huge policemen came in navy blue serge suits, and blue serge was about half an inch thick in the 30s with big brass buttons. They looked like giants, and they said, the man has been found dead. And it seems he was kicked to death. I thought my voice had killed him. That was my uh, seven-year-old logic. So I stopped talking. My mother's family and my mother did their best to woo me away from my mutism. But they didn't know what I knew. My voice could kill. So I stopped. And after a while, I think they just really got tired of the presence of this mad and sullen and silent child. So they sent me back to my grandma, to mama. The best thing that could have happened. My grandmother, she was an amazing woman. She gave me a little tablet, a five-cent tablet, and she took a pocket knife and cut a groove in a number two pencil and put a string in that groove And then the other string she tied to the sparrow of the tablet. And I kept that on my waistband. So if anybody asked me, you know, what I thought, I would write it. Mrs. Flowers was a black lady in stamps in my neighborhood. And she knew I didn't speak. So she took me to the black school. There was a library, about one-tenth the size of my library in my home. But it seemed to me there were millions of books. And she said, I want you to read from A to C-L and make notes. I was eight years old. I read every book. I read <laughs> everything. I don't say I understood that much. But I read, and, and I found that I loved poetry. I loved it. All of it. Just what that which I understood and that which I didn't. She would come up the hill from the white school I don't know how she had that contact. But she'd come up with books for me to read. And I, I loved them. I read Paul L. Dunbar, James Weldon Johnson, Count T. Cullen. I memorized. I read Edgar Allan Poe. I loved Poe so much, I called him Eep to myself. I read Shakespeare, and at one time, I, I memorized like 50 sonnets or something. But I read one sonnet which made me think, Shakespeare may be a black girl in the South who has been molested. How could he know when, in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone bemoan my outcast state and trouble a deaf heaven with my bootless cries and look upon myself and curse my fate? Shakespeare knew what it was like to be raped and scorned, you see. So, I, of course, I thought he was a black girl,
0: barefoot in the South. It spoke to me. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro... Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.
1: About four years after Mrs. Flowers started me to read, and really to read, I was about 12 and a half. Mrs. Flowers invited me to her house, and she used to make tea cookies and lemonade. And she'd give me that to drink, and she'd she'd talk about poetry. And she'd read to me with this illifluous voice. And she said, Maya, you do not like poetry. I got my tablet. I said, yes, ma'am. She wouldn't even look at my tablet. And she pointed her finger at me. And really, black people don't like to be pointed at. And she was so elegant. She knew better. She just shook her finger in my face. I ran out of her house. I ran back to my grandma. And Mrs. Flowers came back there and pointed her finger at me in front of Mama. She said, you'll never love it until you speak it, until you feel it come across your tongue, over your teeth. Through your lips, you will never love poetry. Never. And she harassed me. She kept following me around and around for months. And finally, I went under the house where the chickens go. The dirt is so soft because they scratch under there. I went under that house, and I tried to recite a poem. And I found I had left my voice. My voice hadn't left me. So I started talking again. And uh, I am not stopped, I think, Mrs. Floss. I had loved to dance. I was a dancer, and then my knees went bad, and I had to give it up as a young woman. And I, I, the only thing I ever loved was dancing and writing. I didn't love singing. I wouldn't sacrifice for singing. You can only become great at that thing, willing to sacrifice for. Miss Holiday was visiting me, In the mid-50s, in Hollywood, I was singing for a living. And she asked me, you want to be a great singer? You want to take my place? I said, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. She said, you're going to be famous. You're going to be famous. But it won't be as a singer. So when Miss Holiday said I wouldn't be famous as a singer, I thought, what a drag. But uh, she was absolutely right.
2: In the 50s and 60s, Maya Angelou worked alongside the greatest leaders in the civil rights movement. After touring the world and the chorus of the show Porgy and Bess, she went from singing and dancing to organizing a variety show to raise money for the great Martin Luther King Jr. The Cabaret for Freedom, it was called, ran during the summer of 1959. And afterwards, at the request of Dr. King, she took a leadership role in his organization. Then, in 1964, while teaching at the University of Ghana, she met Malcolm X, who asked her to return to the United States to help him build his organization. Sadly, shortly after her return, Malcolm X was assassinated. And as we all know, there was even more tragedy to come.
1: Martin Luther King was killed on my birthday, April 4, 1968. He had asked me to come back with him for one month and go around the country and talk to preachers and try to get them to give one day one sunday's collection to his movement the poor people's march this was not a black march or white or white. it was only about poor people he said he wanted to get into washington and stay there until legislation could be changed He said he would need tent cities, cities made of tents, to stay there. And he would like me to go. I said yes. But the only thing I said, I will go, but I will not go until after my birthday. My sister friend, Dolly McPherson, telephoned me. She said, Sister, she asked me, are you watching television? I said no. I was cooking for the party. She asked, well, did you listen to the radio? I said no. She said, don't answer the telephone." Please, I'm on my way. I thought, what on earth can be so bad? She came and rang the bell, and I opened the door, and she said, Sister Martin Luther King is dead. I fell. I fell into a depression I'd never known before. What on earth had happened to my country? When she left, I locked the door and refused to answer the phone, answer the door. James Baldwin was my brother friend. Jimmy Baldwin, after a few days, came to my apartment and bam-a-lam-a-lam on the door. Wham! He said, open this door and I'll do this until the police come. So I opened the door. I hadn't had a bath, I hadn't had a shower, I hadn't eaten. He said, first you're going to have a drink, then you're going to eat, then you take a bath, then you put some clothes on, I'm taking you somewhere. And Jimmy said, you need to laugh. He took me to Jules Pfeiffer's house. I didn't know them, but Jules Pfeiffer and his then wife knew Jimmy, and they were ace boons. And they all fell on each other's necks and hugs and all that. And so they told stories and jokes. And so I told some stories about my growing up, the little town. And I said, stamps were so... Prejudice said black people couldn't eat vanilla ice cream. We had to only eat chocolate, which was a lie, but (laughs) Uh, but just a joke. The next day, Judy Pfeiffer called the man who became my editor and said, if you can get this woman who is a poet, if you can get her to write a book, you would have something. So he said he knew about my poetry, but he called and asked, would I write a book? I said, no. Would I write an autobiography? I said, no, no, I will not. In the meantime, I had written 10 one-hour programs for PBS. I went out to San Francisco to produce it with KQED. He phoned me. He had phoned me seven or eight times, and finally he phoned me in San Francisco. And he said, Miss Angelo, you know, I think it's just as well that you don't try to write a book on your life, because to write autobiography as literature... It's almost impossible. I know he'd spoken to James Baldwin, and Jimmy had told him, tell her it's impossible. He said, it's impossible, so it's better that you don't try. So I said, well, I will try. (laughs) But I'll only write one. I have now written 30 books, books of poetry and books of essays and cookbooks and a number of children's books. And I still have the same editor 40 years later. What I think it really means is I'm a teacher. I am a teacher. I teach all the time, as you do and as all of you do, whether we know it or not, whether we take responsibility for it or not. I hold nothing back because I want to see that light go off. I like to see the children think, I never thought of that before. And I think
2: I've got that. I cannot tell you the number of times over the years I've called Maya when someone was saying something hurtful or I was betrayed by somebody I trusted. The most profound thing I remember her saying to me was, baby, those people can't hold a candle to the light God already has shining on your face. Don't you know who you are? You're God's child. You're God's child.
1: If I think of my life as a class and what I've really learned, I've learned a few things. First, I'm aware that I'm a child of God. It's such an amazing understanding to think that the it which made fleas and mountains and rivers and stars made me. What I pray for is humility to know that there is something greater than I, then I have to know that the brute, the bigot, and the batterer are all children of God, whether they know it or not. And I'm supposed to treat them accordingly.
0: And it's hard, and I blow it all the time. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.
1: I'd like everybody to think of a statement by Terrence. The statement is, I am a human being. Nothing human can be alien to me. If you can internalize the least portion of that, you will never be able to say of, a, of an act, a criminal act, or oh, I couldn't do that. No matter how heinous the crime, if a human being did it, you have to say, I have in me all the components that are in her or in him. I intend to use my energies constructively as opposed to destructively. If you can do that about the negative, just think what you can do about the positive. If a human being dreams a great dream, dares to love somebody, if a human being dares to be Martin King, or Mahatma Gandhi, or Mother Teresa, or Malcolm X, if a human being dares to be bigger, than the condition into which she or he was born. It means so can you. And so you can try to stretch, stretch, stretch yourself. So you can internalize, I am a human being. Nothing human can be alien to me. That's one thing I'm learning. My grandmother, my father's mother raised me. She was an amazing woman. She told me, sister, when you get, give. When you learn, teach. These are lessons to live by. I thought for a long time that my grandmother was God. She was so tall. And she used to tell me, sister, Mama don't know what she's going to do. Mama just going to step out on the Word. Just step out on the Word of God. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. People call me stupid, dumb, a moron, an idiot, because I didn't speak for six years. I was a mute. And Mama used to tell me when she'd braid my hair, my hair was huge and very curly. My Mama would say, Sister... Mama don't care what these people say, but you must be an idiot, you must be a moron, because you can't talk. Sister, Mama don't care. Mama know when you and the good Lord get ready. You're going to be a teacher. Sister, you're going to teach all over this world. I used to sit there and think, this poor ignorant woman, doesn't she know I will never speak? I've taught at the Abima Theater in Israel, in Tel Aviv. I've taught in Egypt I've been distinguished visiting professor at the University of Exeter in England. I've taught in Rome and all over the United States. And each time I have another honor, I think of my grandma. Mm. So I am grateful to have been loved and to be loved now and to be able to love, because that liberates. Love liberates. It doesn't just hold. That's ego. Love liberates. When my son was born, I was 17. My mother had a huge house, 14-room house. At 17, I went to her. I said, I'm leaving. She asked me, you're leaving my house? And she had, live-in health. I said, yes, I've found a job, and I've got a room with cooking privileges down the hall." and the landlady will be the babysitter. She asked me, you're leaving my house. I said, yes, ma'am, and you're taking the baby. I said, yes. She said, all right, remember this. When you step over my door sill, you've been raised. You know the difference between right and wrong. Do right. Don't let anybody raise you and make you change. And remember this, you can always come home. I went home every time life slammed me down and made me call it uncle. I went home with my baby. My mother never once acted as I told you so. She said, oh, baby's home. Oh, my darling, mom's going to cook you something. Mother's going to make this for you. Love. She liberated me to life. She continued to do that. When uh, my son may have been five years old, My mother would pick him up all the time and feed him, and I went to her once a month, and she would cook for me. So one day I went to her house, and she'd cooked red rice, which I loved. After we finished eating, we walked down the hill, and she started across the street. She said, wait a minute, baby. I was 22 years old. She said, wait a minute, baby. You know, I think you're the greatest woman I've ever met. She said, Mary McLeod Bethune, Eleanor Roosevelt, and my mother, you're in that category. Then she said, give me a kiss. I gave her a kiss, and I got onto the streetcar. I can remember the way the sun fell on the slats of the wooden seats. I sat there, and I thought about her. I thought, suppose she's right. She's intelligent, and she says she's too mean to lie, so suppose... I am going to be somebody. She released me. She freed me to say I may have something in me that would be of value, maybe not just to me. See? That's love. And when she was in her final sickness, I went out to San Francisco, and the doctor said she had three weeks to live. I asked her, would you come to North Carolina? She said yes. She had emphysema and lung cancer. I brought her to my home. She lived for a year and a half. And when she was finally, finally in extremis, she was on oxygen and finding cancer for her life. And I remembered her liberating me. And I said, I hope I'll be able to liberate her. She deserved that from me. She deserved a great daughter, and she got one. So in her last days, I said, Now, I understand that some people need permission to go. As I understand it, you may have done what God put you here to do. You were a great worker. You must have been a great lover, because a lot of men, and if I'm not wrong, maybe a couple of women risked their lives to love you. You were a piss-poor mother of small children but you were great great mother of young adults and if you need permission to go i liberate you i went back to my house and something said go back i was in my pajamas i jumped in my car and ran and the nurse said she's just gone you see love liberates it doesn't bind love says i love you i love you if you're in china I love you if you cross town. I love you if you're in Harlem. I love you. I would like to be near you. I'd like to have your arms around me. I'd like to hear your voice in my ear. But that's not possible now. So I love you. Go.
2: I have been a student of Maya Angelou's since I opened her first book. I know why the Cage bird sings. The pages of her life mirrored my own, and for the first time as a young black girl reading that book, my experience, my life experience was validated. And I believe that's just the greatest lesson any teacher can give, to teach her students the truth of who they are.
1: Maybe the hardest part is you—if <laughs> if you teach, you have to live your teaching. Mm. You can't say... You do, not as I do, but do as I say. No, no. You have to say, I'm doing my best to live what I teach. I have a painting by Phoebe of a group that she calls Sister Suki's Funeral. And they all the women, they are about nine women, and they, they all look like women in my grandmother's prayer meeting group. So whenever I'm obliged to do something, I take that painting... And I look at that painting. There's an empty chair. And I think, now, what would Grandma do? What would she say? I can almost hear her voice say, now, sister, you know what's right. Just do right. You don't really have to ask anybody. The truth is, right may not be expedient. It may not be profitable. But it will satisfy your soul. It brings you the kind of protection that bodyguards can't give you. Try to be all you can be, to be the best human being you can be. Try to be that in your church, in your temple. Try to be that in your classroom. Do it because it is right to do. You see? People will know you, and they will add their prayers to your life. They'll wish you well. I think If your name is mentioned and people say, oh, hell, oh, damn, (laughs) I think you're doing something wrong. But if your name is mentioned and people say, oh, she's so sweet, he's so nice, oh, I love, oh, God bless her. There you are. So try to live your life in a way that you will not regret years of useless virtue and inertia and timidity. Take up the battle. Take it up. It's yours. This is your life. This is your world. I'll be leaving it long before you under the ordinary set of circumstances. You make your own choices. You can decide life isn't worth living. And that would be the worst thing you can do. How do you know? So far. Try it. See. So pick it up. Pick up the battle and and make it a better world. Just where you are, yes.
2: And it can be better, and it must be better. But it
1: is up to us.
2: I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.
0: Look around. You can find cars like these on Autotrader.